We look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And I trust that the Lord would grant us the wondrousness of beholding the light of his prophetic truth. The Apostle Peter speaks of prophecy as a light shining in a dark place. And indeed, there's nothing like biblical prophecy and the multitude of prophecies all fulfilled in our blessed Savior. And as we often think of the divine incarnation at this time of year, uh, I think that's a good thing to do and the purpose for which our blessed Savior came into this world. And I agree with Spurgeon. I remember reading Spurgeon, and sometimes there are those who try to teach that Spurgeon was opposed to Christmas. And yet, uh, when I read Spurgeon, I read him saying that we should take the good and leave the superstition to the superstitious. And uh, was rejoicing in the good of those who labored so in his day, having a day that they could spend with their family and their friends. And though he put, nor do we, any religious significance whatsoever to Christmas Day. And uh, we do not know when Christ was born. I'm pretty much sure it was not on December 25th. And so we yet... Uh, recognize, and of course he said, you know, it's popish in origin, and uh, the Catholics have a right to recognize it religiously, but we don't. But we do rejoice that we may consider the wondrousness of the divine incarnation. And so, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we're going to deal with this in a prophetic sense in looking at some prophetic intimations about Bethlehem. And uh, that will teach us some wonderful things, I trust, as we look into this passage. And uh, it is uh, quite a verse of Scripture that will teach us a glorious truth. We could go into it doctrinally as considering the two natures of our Lord in his wondrous, glorious person. He who is God, essentially, eternally, and yet became man. And uh, the two natures in the one person. And so we could consider that in a doctrinal sense. We could look at it in, uh, in a historical sense or in a contextual sense in various passages. And of course, if we looked at it contextually, we would understand there was great trouble that would take place before the birth of our Savior, which did. Kind of like Isaiah chapter 7 that deals with the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, when it, that passage sets forth that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, that prophecy was given as a promise, as it were, at such a time when it looked like the nation was going to be destroyed from foreign powers. And so that's quite a passage in Isaiah chapter 7. But we want to look more so prophetically at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And we read here, Thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, 
that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Well, as we think upon and we ponder the wonder that took place on that day, whatever day it was, when out of the shining of the Lord's glory, the angels quelled the fears of some lowly shepherds on a hillside of Judea with the words, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So we look here and consider one of God's own pre-announcements of the glorious event of the divine incarnation. There are those who surely with sin-blinded eyes will be tempted to think that the birth, the life, the teachings, the miracles, the events, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead are so fantastic that they must have been invented by the New Testament writers. And yet they've never considered the prophetic scriptures, the marvel that God pre-announced over and over again the coming of the Savior long before in the Old Testament. There is a light that shines in the darkness. That light is prophecy. There is no place darker than the sin-blinded hearts of men. It is still an astounding verse in many ways in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And if this light, this light that was not brought or does not shine forth by human reason, nor does it come by emotional mystical experience, it comes by the work of God's Holy Spirit as he gives a life-giving hearing of the word of God. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's wondrous when this light shines unto you, and the day star, or the sun of righteousness, arises in your heart. And so, we look at this passage, and we not only go to Bethlehem, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born there, we want to look at some centuries before this as well and see what took place indeed on that glorious day of the birth of the Savior who was enfolded in the arms of his virgin mother realizing that this was the eternal purpose of God and it was pre-announced over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures. So we have this little village called Bethlehem. Little, but destined to a great thing. Thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, 
from everlasting. This little town was very small. And because of its smallness and because of the size or the fewness of its residents, this Bethlehem of old, long before it became known as the city of David, long before it was the city of David, occupied a rather low rank among the towns in Judah. And of course, most of you probably know this, but the tribes of Israel were divided into thousands. It required a thousand or more to be numbered among the thousands of Israel. Or else a town with less or a small place was counted with others, maybe the closest one, to make up the number. Bethlehem, coupled with its ancient patriarchal name, which was Ephratah. When you read about Ephrath or Ephratah in the Old Testament, that became known as Bethlehem. And because of its little size, it was considered so insignificant that the larger and proud sister towns probably looked down upon it, which is common among men. But the contrast in our verse is not between the size of the towns, but Bethlehem's insignificance in the eyes of the world, and yet the great destiny to which God chose this place. When Micah writes about it and draws from Micah 5.2, or Matthew rather draws from it, Micah 5.2, he says it's not the least among those towns. Why does he say that? because of the greatness of the destiny that it had come into. And so this little town was destined to have this great destiny indeed. But the contrast, again, is not between the size of the towns and Bethlehem's insignificance in the size of the world, but that to which God had chosen it. Thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. I do rejoice when I read the scripture and I realize that God did not choose the great, the proud, and the massive numbers that he chose the common people. I rejoice to be among the common people of the world. We read in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, base things of the world, and things which are despised, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. I learn in Scripture that God will bring down the proud. I read in Scripture that pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. I read in Scripture that those who are centered in themselves and raise themselves up and want the praises of men are going to come into some pretty difficult things. The proud God will bring down. 
and those of low estate in the eyes of men and in their own eyes. Those who know they have nothing of themselves, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describes them as the poor in spirit. Those who know they have nothing of themselves, God is often pleased to raise them to an honor that they always remember they do not deserve. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 11 thanks the Father that he's hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. The house of David, as intimated in our prophecy, the house of David when Christ, the promised Messiah, would come, would be at its lowest point. And Mary, whose son was also the son of God, would cry, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Christ, who would be born in a stable, Christ, the Prince of Glory, the Lord of Glory. Christ, who for all eternity bore the riches of the eternal glory of God in manifestation. Christ, who was manifest as God before he came into this world. Christ, who brought all things into existence, was born in a stable. and laid where animals fed. And did it for us. For our sakes he became poor. That you through his poverty might be rich. Christ who was born in that stable. Does not shun the poorest of the world. The insignificant of the world the unknown by the world that calls all who are burdened with sin to come to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest under your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are known by God, and we're not simply speaking of the divine omniscience. The God who knows all things for all eternity. We're speaking of this relation that God brings his redeemed into. If you're known by God, realize that you're loved with an everlasting love. Saved by the grace of God with an everlasting salvation. Does it matter if the world knows you? No. What only matters for eternity is if you're known by God and if you know Him. And if when your body lies in the grave and it will do so if the Lord tarries and men walk by and they see the inscription on your tombstone and they say that doesn't mean a thing to me. I don't know who they were. 
It's interesting. I like to walk through graveyards. I like to read tombstones. Anybody like to do that? I like to read the inscriptions on tombstones. Some of them elaborate. Some of them very brief. But it may be that someone will walk by our tombstone one day and say, I know who they were. It not mean anything to me. Yet how blessed you are if in your souls you realize, as God said through the prophet Isaiah, I know you. I will never forget you. Yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. But then as we look into this huge verse of Scripture, we want to take a trip back further in time. Back further to the ancient Bethlehem, long before it was the city of David. Not only to consider clear prophetic declaration, but even the prophetic intimations that are first given. There are many pictures, there are many types in Scripture. You remember the Lord Jesus says, the Scriptures are they which testify of me. And I was thinking about that. We read, he's the rock of our salvation. What do we read first about the rock in Scripture? Moses smiting it. Instead of smiting the people who had sinned against God, God says, smite the rock. And out of it came forth water. It was a picture of the one who would be smitten for the transgressions of others and the water of life that would flow forth. And he's the rock of our salvation. So in those pictures, we have some wondrous things if we have eyes to behold it. If you look into Genesis 35, you find the first mention of Bethlehem. In Genesis chapter 35, it was a time of great sorrow. It was a time when Jacob's wife, Rachel, would die in childbearing. And yet it has a great message. In Genesis chapter 35, in verses 16 through 19... We read, and they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, that's Ephrathah, Bethlehem later known as, and would be in this passage. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Well, do we not immediately consider that like Rachel, could not Mary have called her son Benoni? Could she not call him Benoni? You see, Benoni means the son of my sorrow. We know that our Lord was a man of sorrows. 
but so was his mother, Mary. She had great sorrow at the rejection of her son. Great sorrow as she stood by the cross. There was a prophecy given by one called Simeon, an aged Simeon in the temple when the Lord Jesus was eight years old and was taken for circumcision. He says to her, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. She knew what it was to have sorrow. But then also, like Jacob's naming his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Like Jacob's naming his son Benjamin. So, God, the Father's Benjamin, is the son of his right hand. Then, if you want to go further in time, or up some from that period, go to the day of the judges. And in the day of the judges, you find a woman whose name was Naomi. Of course, you've read about Naomi in the book of Ruth. She would know some joy that was brought out of her sorrow. And she would have her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess, who would, leave, who would refuse to leave her and become a great comfort to her. Ruth married a man named Boaz. He was the redeemer kinsman of her late husband. There's a great picture in that as well. And bore to him Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. And whose son was that of Jesse? David. Was Jesse's son. And like Rahab, here was another Gentile who was in the line of Christ. There were Gentiles in the line of Christ. The son of Mary, who was also the son of God, who had become the savior not only of the Jew, but also of the Gentile. By the way, significantly, Christ was never called by the Hebrew name Joshua, but always by its Greek equivalent, Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. As little as was Bethlehem. That little town of Bethlehem. It became esteemed as a royal city. Because David was born there. David was raised there. So it became known as the city of David. Christ, the promised one, must be born in Bethlehem. Not because of its history, but because God who promised that he would be the seed of David according to the flesh, predestined that he should be born there and declared it seven centuries before in this prophecy. Thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So consider the incredible thing that was so unlikely that brought the Lord Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Mary's condition, of course, we read in Scripture, Luke chapter 2, was she was great with child. Great with child. Which would have prevented her from traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Well, why did she go to Bethlehem? She went to Bethlehem. Because the great God who purposes all things and specially sent forth his son in the fullness of time, the great God who purposed all things moved Caesar Augustus to make a strange decree arbitrarily that all the world should be taxed. Not that they would be able to pay their tax in the city where they lived. They had to travel To the city of their origin to pay the tax. How could such a thing have happened? Because God decreed it. Christ must be born in Bethlehem. And this would, of course, fulfill the prophecy that at the time would be so incredibly unlikely. And at Bethlehem. God sends a message to the lowliest of men, despised, laboring, smelly shepherds on a hillside of Judea. I bring you good tidings of great joy. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. God sent the message to the lowly ones. From history to prophecy, the very meaning of the names of the place, Bethlehem, Ephratah, all would have its meaning in regard to him who would come from eternity and be laid not in a castle, but in an animal stall. Where animals feed. Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. Because here would come the true bread the bread of life, the bread of heaven, the one who would say, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. The bread, this bread that God sent like bread would have to be crushed. And then it's put into the fire. And 
made the only food that will give and sustain eternal life. I am the bread of life. The saint, the one who is truly in Christ, does not find nourishment for the soul in this world that is no friend of grace. Even the things in the world become dull eventually to one who does not know the wondrousness, the glory, the richness of salvation in Christ. The husks of this world will not satisfy the saint. Only when we come to feast on the bread that the world knows nothing of. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Oh, men can be awfully religious and have no heart for Christ and no knowledge of him, no yearning for the things of God, no desire for the outflow of God's wondrous truth in their souls, but love the world still and yet eventually find it empty. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. House of bread. And then the ancient name, Ephratah, is rather important as well. Ephratah means fruitfulness. For Christ would come and die in the place of sinners. He who said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And I like the way Spurgeon put it. Our poor barren hearts ne'er produced one fruit or flower till they were watered with the Savior's blood. Bethlehem, Ephratah, gloriously and rightly named the fruitful house of bread, out of which came all of the abundant provision we shall ever need for life, for living, and for eternal life. Quite a prophecy in this verse. Born in the village of Bethlehem. Born was one who came from eternity into time. Born the one everlasting king and ruler of the one true Israel of God. Thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, like none other, like no son of Adam whatsoever. He was before he came. He was before he became. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
to any understanding at all about the self-imposed poverty of our blessed Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. You have to begin before his humble birth in Bethlehem's manger. You must look beyond the whole realm of creation to an eternal and uncreated existence before time was, before anything existed, before light raced its way through this universe, before any material was brought into existence. Let human reason bow in submission to divine revelation, to things higher than human reason could ever reach. And here, from the lips of incarnate deity, before Abraham was, I am. The deepest truth of our Lord's birth was not that he was born, rather that he became. He was before he became. Our Apostle John doesn't undertake to explain it. No human being, not all human beings combined, not even the most spiritually minded could explain it. John only declares it as God gave him to declare it. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. He goes on in the prologue of His Gospel to write, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came from eternity. He emptied himself of divine glory, not deity. He was God manifest in the flesh. His glory he laid aside. The riches that belonged to him as the glorious manifestation of the living God to the angelic host. He exchanged to take upon him the form of a servant. To take upon him flesh and blood. To stoop further than anyone ever else possibly could. To give up the riches of eternal glory. To come into this world not simply to show us the way but to be the way. For us to be born means that we had a beginning. In that beginning, we had been given the riches of natural life, a rational soul, endowments, capabilities, capacities that God had given us. It's wondrous to watch a little child grow. 
to begin to discern that they have certain abilities, maybe unique to them. God gives those things naturally to us. When we begin, we begin to Him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't like us. To Him to be born was a step infinitely downward. To come from the realm of divine glory of riches we cannot begin to comprehend into the dependence of our human nature as a man to grow in wisdom. As a man to experience what we experience in nature, accepting sin. As a man to know what it was to thirst, to become wearied, As a man, he came with the dependence of human nature, the Creator, the Creator taking upon him the form of the creature. What an incredible thing! What a marvelous thing. What in all the world can compare to that? The Creator. Taking the form of a creature. Alone speaking what? None other could rightly speak and none other could ever say. In truth, I came down from heaven. I came down from heaven. And for what purpose? The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. Listen to his piercing words in John chapter 8. I am from above, year from below. Year of this world, I am not of this world. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And then to John, chapter 3, verse 31. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And then a few verses later, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is he whom God the Father sent into the world, whose very eternal deity the Son possesses as well, the same nature with the Father. Made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Son came into this world to do the will of the Father. In perfect submission to the Father. In perfect trust in the Father. The only place we find in this world perfect trust of God is in our Lord. We sometimes struggle with it. 
In the darkest hours, in the most difficult days, in the most horrendous suffering, in the greatest of loss as far as this world is concerned, the heart of the Lord was not my will, but thine be done. Perfect submission. Our Lord said prophetically in Psalm chapter 40 verse 7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. From the first promise of a coming Redeemer, rather vaguely given right at the fall of man, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. God says to the serpent, From Seth, after Satan moved upon Cain to to slay his brother Abel, God gave another whose name was Seth. And his mother Eve recognized that he was the appointed one. Seth. Then from Seth to Shem, From Shem, Noah's son, he was to be looked for. From the three sons of Noah, God had chosen Shem, through whom Messiah would come. The promise gets ever narrower as you go through the Old Testament. God calls one man who is of Shem out of Ur of the Chaldees. His name is Abraham. In thy seed, God says to him, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Then out of Israel that comes out of Abraham. Then particularly of one tribe in Israel, of the tribe of Judah, as God gave the prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10 to Jacob, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, the man of peace, the prince of peace, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Narrow it down further through David. The house of David, the branch of David, Messiah is called. And as God spoke through Jeremiah, the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 23, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper, and uh, uh, he shall be the one that shall rule over Israel. His name. Jehovah, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. There is nothing like this book when it is comprehended, believed, loved, because the truth of God is put into our souls. Yeah. Then the very place of his birth, thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah. 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And then how was he to be born into the world? Through the womb of a virgin. A virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the angel comes to a young virgin and says to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. All of the scattered rays of prophetic light in the Old Testament scriptures, all of their beams going out in multitudes of ways, they all focus upon God's final word to mankind, His very Son. God, who sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers, hath in these days spoken unto us by his Son. How blessed we are to live this side of Calvary. Hear the word of God and believe it. Receive it. Rejoice in it. Trust him. O Zion that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's in Isaiah 40, in a prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah and the declaration of him. Do you know when men are destined to be kings in monarchies in this world? When they're born into this world, they're not born kings. They're born princes. They may destined be destined to become kings, but they're princes. But he was born a king. He was born the king. Those men that came out of the east, the magi, their question was right. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Born a king. The only true ruler of the eternal Israel of God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will perform this. Mm -hmm. What a light we have in prophetic scripture. What glorious truth long given before the coming of the divine incarnation. Let us, my brother and sister, always bow in faith before the golden scepter of our Lord's cross by whom alone we are redeemed to God to give ourselves up to Him to be His alone no longer our own and with our lives and with our lips glorify Him who loved us and gave himself for us.